Hello, and welcome to the Pink Isle. My name is Henry Kathman, and joining me, as always, is the irreverent, yet irreplaceable, and iridescent, Emma Corey. Wow, iridescent. Really busting out the theosaurus there, I see. I am. I do love me some alliteration, and I just think that I need to give a little bit more variety in the adjectives that I use to introduce you with. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know what what I'm feeling like today, Henry? What are you feeling? I'm today, feeling like Emma? I'm ready to watch another movie about a plucky young girl who uh is going through these major historical events, who has a uh, can-do attitude and a lot of bravery and is going to learn the lessons about friendship and being yourself and also about how her uh, parents are mortal <laughs> beings so wow that's a very specific request but and a very specific feeling but i think i do have you covered because ladies and gentlemen and others we are covering kit kitteridge an american girl a movie that has way more production values and has a much more beloved reputation compared to the Molly and Felicity movies that we have seen. Emma, what is your experience with Kit? So Kit, I'm trying to think. Kit, she's like Great Depression era, right? Yeah, so uh, her story primarily takes place in the year 1934, so at the kind of heights of that. Yeah, and isn't her thing that she, like, wants to be, like, a journalist, I think? Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. She writes a little newsletter and hands it out to her friends and family trying to act like a reporter. Okay, okay. See. And I yeah. feel like she's also uh, one of the American girls that kind of appeals to the more sapphic demographic as well, if I can recall. Oh, yeah. Between her and Molly, I think that something about the 30s and 40s just has this quality of sapphicness that... Well, because there were no men around, because they were at the war, so that's why. That's true. <laughs> they were at the war or at the breadline, yeah. so... I, I do think that Kit does tend to serve... Some of your more WLW needs if you're looking for an American girl. Which is funny considering that Molly's movie, it had some falls, but I will say it, it did serve a lot of that baby gay energy just in time for Pride. Woo. Oh, happy June. Sponsored by Raytheon. We put the rainbow in Raytheon ballistic missiles. Oh, God. So... My favorite was the uh, Instagram post by the U.S. Marines with the rainbow bullets. That was uh, yeah. really, really, really happening to the feels of the time, you know? Really, really serving that fierce energy, <laughs> Betch. Oh, God. But As my, the wigs, that, right? I'm, I'm, am I doing it, Emma? Am I doing a pride? Uh, slay, you got to put in some Yas Slay Queen in there. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll have to note that for the next time. But yeah, 
Kate Kittredge, an American girl, is a interesting little specimen compared to the other American girl movies yeah, that we have watched thus from what far. From what I recall, this movie was like an actual movie, right? Like it is a theatrical release. Yeah, because yes. I remember uh, like actually distri- seeing like commercials for this on TV. I think like. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, this is a movie that. Unlike the previous American Girl movies, which were done with a cooperation between uh, the CW Network and Warner Brothers Television, this was a full-on budget movie done with New Line Cinema, HBO Films, Picture House, and Warner Brothers being the main distributors. And there's some interesting history behind there. The idea of a theatrical American Girl film had actually been floated around for a long time, uh, primarily by the producers Elaine Goldsmith-Thomas, Lisa Gillian, and Julian Roberts. Even in the early 2000s, they were floating around the idea of an American Girl movie. But at the time, the president of the American Girl company, Ellen L. Bothers, had some hesitancy around the project, stating, quote, it was all very brand new to us. So... I think it's understandable that they ended up going with the TV movie approach, at least at first, because there's a lot more risk that could come with a full-on theatrical release. But once the Samantha TV movie ended up premiering, they decided to actually move forward with an actual theatrical release, which admittedly, you know, took some extra time between the original 2004 release and the 2007 initial shooting. So in between that time of developing the actual theatrical film, that's where we got the Felicity and Molly movie, which I don't know. I think that's a pretty interesting sign of what's to come. But as you mentioned, Emma, there are a number of things that come with the territory of it being an actual theatrical release with a, not unsubstantive budget. It had a budget of $10 million. And out of that, we ended up getting some pretty interesting talent. Who would you want me to start with? Should I go into the cast first or should I go into the other production crew? I'd say let's go production crew and then cast. Well, this movie is going to be directed by Patricia Rosema. She's been working pretty consistently in Hollywood for the past couple of decades. She's primarily a Canadian film director who... Wow, a Canadian filming the American Girl movie? I know, shocking. There's nothing those those moose lovers won't take from us. Indeed. But she recently did work on this Netflix series as the director for something called Sex Slash Life. I don't know how popular that series is but it you know it does actually indicate that there is some major talent behind this and in addition to that we have Anne Peacock as the writer for this movie which as the film trailers were very very gleeful to announce she was one of the writers for the Chronicles of Narnia the Lion the Witch and the Wardrobe that does kind of bring me back to this kind of era of like middle grade fiction or fantasy fiction being a big thing at the time oh yeah Walden Media was at their A game just pumping out all of those middle school classics this was the same era as does anyone remember the Spiderwick Chronicles hey 
the Spider-Web Chronicles movie talks smack, but that had some pretty good performances, some pretty good production design. I thought that movie was pretty good, honestly. I don't know. I never watched it, but who could forget Ugh. The Golden Compass? Okay, that one, not as good. Yeah. yeah. I remember I did quite enjoy that one as a kid just because I thought the concept was so fun with, like, the, the animal spirits. But, like, I rewatched it recently, and I'm like, man, this movie is, like, 90% exposition. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever end up watching the uh, HBO series? Uh, I haven't. I feel like I've heard kind of mixed things about it. Yeah. I... And it's got Lin-Manuel Miranda in it. It does. It does. As someone with not a lot of affection or history with the series, it seems interesting, but it's like, eh. And in addition to being joined by Anne Peacock, obviously it's going to be based off of Valerie Tripp's original Kittredge novels, but the last two people that I want to highlight are the editor and the cinematographer. The editing was done by Julie Rogers, who was actually in the editorial department for movies like Big Hero 6 and the Lego Ninjago movie. But David Boyd, the cinematographer, worked on a large number of different TV shows. He was the director of photography for The Walking Dead. He was the DP for the pilot to Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., this new series called Away. And I'm very interested in actually seeing some of this dude's work at play because just looking at the trailer this movie seems to have a very distinct vibe unlike the other american girl movies there seems to be a more directed plot with this one instead of the kind of episodic stuff we saw with the felicity and molly movie and to an extent the samantha movie yeah that's the kind of thing that's like what i'm hoping most to get out of this movie i just want like a movie with a three-act structure not like little episodic segments that all kind of sort of follow the same formula after a bit because definitely going back into that molly movie it was starting to get a bit yeah indeed So I think with that said, let's talk a little bit about the cast, because again, this movie had a little bit of a budget to throw around, so we got some relatively big and recognizable names. First person that I want to highlight is Abigail Breslin as Kit. You might actually recognize her as Olive from Little Miss Sunshine or Bo from Signs. She also starred in August Osage County. She's one of those child actors who gets her start in like Oscar movies. And since then, she has taken some interesting directions in her career. One of her big notable recent things was starring in the Zombieland Double Tap sequel. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she was Lil Rock in both Zombieland. Oh, yeah, Zombieland. Yeah, I remember that was like one of the first like R-rated movies I think I ever watched like when I was growing up. I admittedly haven't seen Zombieland yet. I, I don't know how well it's aged. I haven't seen it in a while. I just know that when the sequel came out, it felt like, you know, people didn't really show up too much for it, unfortunately. Yeah. But Abigail is not the only one in this movie. We have other, like, pretty big notable names. Uh, Chris O'Donnell stars as her father, who you might know as Robin from that one movie that everyone's still very angry about. 
as well as Julia Ormond, who played a number of roles in The Walking Dead. But honestly, the biggest highlights in this cast seem to come from the supporting characters. I just want to get your ratings on excitement for seeing some of these people. So as you mentioned, we do got the old Stanley Tucci in here. He's playing uh, a guy named Jefferson Burke, who's a stage magician, I believe. Uh, that's gonna be exciting everyone's favorite not gay gay actor (laughs) (laughs) indeed indeed we also have joan cusack starring as a character named miss bond who i think is like a librarian lady i always like to see me a joan cusack even though her appearances sometimes mark things being either Really good, or, oh boy, Joan, why are you in this one? Oh, God. She seems like one of those actors who there's very little middle ground in terms of the quality movies that she's in. Sometimes she's voicing Jesse in a Toy Story 3, and then in some, she's starring in movies, Pop Star Never Stop Stoppin'. I heard that movie was pretty funny. I mean, I haven't watched the I movie, was... but I've listened to the some of the songs from it, and they're pretty funny. Yeah, that's the thing. The songs itself are good, and like, I, I love me some Andy Samberg and The Lonely Island, don't get me wrong, but it's one of those things where a story working better as like individual skits being kind of brought down by stretching it out to a whole like feature film, you know? Yeah. I mean, I guess I haven't actually seen the movie, so I guess I'll have to take your word on that. Mm. I mean, if you want to watch some Lonely Island collaboration type stuff, you're going to be much better served by watching Brigsby Bear. Mm -hmm. I am an evangelist for Brigsby Bear. More people need to watch Brigsby Bear, and not enough people have done it, and... It saddens me. Oh, God. I just remembered uh, she played the uh, the villain in Adam's Family Values. She did. <laughs> yeah. See, like I said, lots of great stuff from Miss Cusack. Very excited to see her, especially since she is going to be playing off of Jane Krakowski as oh. a character named Miss Dooley. Yes, yeah. I love it. Jane Krakowski, yeah. famed actress, most known for... Uh, originating in the original Broadway cast of Starlight Express. Oh my god. True facts. Uh, Yeah. I feel like Jane Krakowski, it's pretty easy to get her into a role if it's like, listen, Jane, I know we haven't told you a single thing about this movie, but the script does call for you doing a dance number where you get to kick your legs up really high. (laughs) Love me some Jane Krakowski. And the last major supporting person that I want to highlight is Wallace Shawn. Oh, yeah, I forgot he's in this, too. Yeah, (laughs) Wallace Shawn, always a delight when you see him. I have yet to see a Wallace Shawn appearance that didn't delight me. Like, even if he's showing up in, like, crap like Gossip Girl or... Oh, God, he also showed up in that book club movie. Do you remember that? No. (laughs) That was the movie where the whole premise was, ooh, we have Diane Keaton and Jane Fonda having to read Fifty Shades of Grey and talking about sex. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's wild to think of that, but that movie did basically feel like a tie-in product to the whole Fifty Shades of Grey phenomenon, which is really weird to think about someone making a whole movie as like cash grab of that but there's a lot of really interesting actors in here a lot of really experienced people and from what i remember of kit like one of the other big premises to her story is that her family in order to 
you know, make ends meet and to help out her neighbors turns their house into a boarding house. I imagine a lot of these characters are coming in as like these sort of wacky side characters of like, ooh, let's see what weird people we can get in to stay in the boarding house. So I'm very excited to see what they end up doing with Kit and her story and the I think there's like a mystery that's going to be at play with this one. Yeah, because I, I remember kind of mixing this movie in my brain with like, I think there was like also like a Nancy Drew movie that came out like in the yeah. time. Mm-hmm. It didn't help that the Nancy Drew movie was also released, I think, by Warner Brothers as well. Let me double check that. But are you ready to have a little exploration fun time with uh, Kit? I I cannot wait to have this uh, rip-roaring time in the uh, Great Depression era. Well, yeah, that's why they call it the Great Depression, because, you know, it was just so great. It was the greatest depression we've ever had. Yeah, definitely the greatest one. <laughs> Let's go. Kit Kittredge is so inquisitive and interested in everything. She wants to be a reporter when she grows up. Nothing gives her more pleasure than to plunk the keys of her clackety old typewriter, writing newsletters for family and friends. So Kit's journey, like the journey that all, I believe, nine and ten-year-olds are taking, is about looking at the broader world suddenly and realizing you have a role to play in this world, too. You're deciding what kind of person you are going to be with every move you make, with every word you say. So I think that's something that hasn't changed for girls. And we're back, listener, and I gotta say, had me a good old time with this one. Emma, what'd you think? Um, I thought it was uh, pretty decent, you know, definitely pretty similar to the previous films of kind of like the sort of episodic nature, but it kind of had more of a, uh, I think, a main plot to kind of connect it all together. Yeah. You know, I felt like we see you know, a lot of the beats we've seen in these other movies, you know, the struggling having the one parent that's like absent and then comes back at the end type thing i kind of felt like the the strength with this one was like the presence of a lot of the side characters Mm -hmm. in that sense i think like the kind of celebrity casting they had in this movie really did kind of elevate it because you got like a bunch of these like sort of memorable side characters involved in the plot yeah and definitely, like, the higher production value helped to make the movie a lot more visually interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, even with the production quality aside, I do think we do deserve to give Anne Peacock a little bit of credit as a screenwriter, because you are definitely right. This movie does follow the similar episodic structure of the previous American Girl movies, where it's pretty clear that they are taking numerous different American Girl novels and having to adapt all those into a single cohesive narrative. But you really get the impression of, at least with this screenplay, is that they didn't have this instinct to try and keep every single thing from the book. Because I think that was a problem that the Felicity and Molly movie kind of suffered from, where it felt like, oh, we need to adapt everything from this novel now. Okay, now we're done. Now to the next novel and keep going until the movie is over. Mm -hmm. With this, it feels like they've done what a good adaptation should do and pick out the best parts and figure out ways to rearrange and configure it so that it works best 
as a single cohesive self-contained narrative. So big props there. But you are all right, though, that the higher production values probably help to elevate this a good deal. I also did appreciate like the 1930s music that they had in here during the background. A lot of the scenes I'm like, Mm -hmm. because I feel like a lot it was kind of the MO for a lot of these sort of like kids adventure films to kind of like add in the unnecessary pop song in there at some point, even if it didn't really Mm -hmm. fit with the setting. So that was, that was pretty refreshing. I will also say that this movie's production values are pretty good in terms of being able to actually convincingly depict the 1930s. I feel like that was a problem that we saw with the Molly movie where, I don't know, it didn't feel especially lived in as a setting. But with this, like, the fact that you see, like, a bunch of these vintage cars, the fact that they have a number of these old pieces of furniture around. In fact, the costume designer, uh, Dorothea Lange, deserves some credit here because she talks about going through this very uh, meticulous process of looking through old Sears Roebuck catalogs and vintage photographs in order to try and produce a very authentic look. So so many, so many bucket hats in this movie. Yeah, so many so bucket many. hats. I mean, that was the fashion then. So I think I think they captured it pretty well. I feel like the bit of a higher budget and the sort of celebrities in this movie was kind of what made it stand out from some of the previous movies. But overall, it does kind of hit a lot of the same feelings and a lot of the same beats. Mm. So it's not really like revolutionarily different from the previous American Girl films. But because these dolls were as expensive as they were, that like a girl would probably get like just one of the dolls Mm -hmm. And then, you know, get the books and the accessories and watch the movie that was associated with that one doll. Yeah. Said, not sure. What about Kit Kittredge? Made them want to kind of move to like a higher budget, bigger film for her. I'm kind of wondering if like maybe this movie had done better. That might have been like their kind of MO from the get go after that. Or maybe it was because, you know, hey, like kid detective stories are kind of having having their moment right now we got like this character that could kind of fit into that mold yeah. why don't you know make her the one we prop up you know yeah i don't know i would be very interested to find out why they went with kith specifically but i know she is definitely one of the more popular dolls in the american girl doll line which i know must have been a factor but i will say the kid mystery angle it's interesting that we mentioned Nancy Drew, because uh, I'm getting some Nancy Drew boxcar kids. Harriet uh, the Spy, that one? Yeah, yeah, Harriet the Spy was there. Uh, Encyclopedia Brown, that was the other big one. And to their credit, something that makes this movie kind of interesting from a story perspective is that there was a genuinely somewhat unpredictable quality to it where they did build up certain things but there were a lot of bits that did genuinely take us by surprise which was very refreshing honestly yeah there was uh, some twisty twists in there we were we were betrayed by the tucci as it were uh yeah well i mean i guess spoilers but yeah tucci uh played with our hearts and we got burned because of it but (laughs) Mm -hmm. i think before we get into that we might as well Get into the very start of this story. So, as we mentioned, this movie takes place during 1934, during the heights of the Great Depression. And just a couple of notes at the beginning. It starts with this big photo montage of Kit's, like, uh, memorabilia board, which 
is basically like a little shrine to all the kind of stuff that's going on in the 30s. It is notable that she does have an Amelia Earhart picture just like... Before the crab got her. (laughs) Oh, God. I'm just saying, uh, you know, my older sister was also very, very interested in Amelia Earhart. Just saying. So... Uh, How does she feel about uh, Amy Adams' Amelia Earhart in the second Night at the Museum movie? I'll have to ask, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say she's probably into it. So... Uh, Yeah, shout out to Emily there. But the movie starts in earnest when Kit is having this little special treehouse club with like some of our friends. And one of the young kids, the little sister, do you remember the name of this kid? Her friends at the beginning of the movie? Yeah. It was like Francis and yeah, can't remember the other girl's name. But uh... well, I just want to give a shout out to the youngest actress there, that kid who was like, very sassy, and I did appreciate her. I believe her name was uh, Francis and Florence, uh, Florence being the younger one. And just a little shout out to Erin Hilgarter, who was the girl who played her. Very sassy. You love to see it. They're doing this little meeting where they're basically swearing a blood oath, you know, doing that kind of little girl thing. And... The little revelry in the treehouse is interrupted when it turns out, oh no, the house to Francis and Florence is becoming foreclosed. And it was honestly a little bit harrowing to see that kind of happening. Like, I don't know about you, but something that I appreciated about this movie is that while the American Girl stories have a propensity to somewhat soften the blows of a lot of the harsh historical realities that people tended to face... I will say I think they did a pretty decent job of depicting the sort of anxiety and precarity that kind of came about with the Great Depression. Yeah, I mean, at first I was kind of like a bit eh, because it was like, oh, so we're going to show that, you know, Kit comes from this pretty upper class, like middle class family. So I thought it was kind of going to kind of be a thing where like, oh, like, you know, like Samantha, where like... She learns of the existence of people in poverty, but, like, the people in, like, poverty aren't, like, the stars of the movie. Mm -hmm. But then it turns out that pretty much all the characters in this story are in very precarious positions and end up getting put into, you know, places where they are liable to lose something. Because, like, right at the beginning of the movie, we see what happens where uh, Kit's friends, that they're her neighbors, that their house gets foreclosed and they end up having to move away. Yeah. And so... Yeah, it does kind of show how, even though Kit is definitely uh, advantage over other characters we see in the movie, that kind of, they are kind of living in a time where everyone is kind of struggling, except for, it seems, the family of uh, Kit's other friend, Ruthie, whose yeah. father owns the bank, and mm-hmm. yeah, they seem to be the, the only ones that don't really have to struggle. Yeah, that that was one thing where I was kind of ready to give a little side eye to of like, are they going to make her dad sympathetic and be like, oh, I hate to do this, but we have no choice type of stuff. I I will say I didn't feel like they did a whole lot of that in this. While it's true that at a certain point, Ruth helps to delay the foreclosure of Kit's house. I do think that they probably played that story beat as best as they probably could given like the original books and trying to adapt that yeah it was kind of thing i kind of felt 
wish they would have gotten more to like Ruthie's family and mm-hmm. how they were affecting other people because I don't think we even meet like her parents or anything. But like we briefly I don't know. meet the dad when he gets robbed. No, that yeah. wasn't that wasn't the dad. Oh, it was that just got yeah, robbed. that's right. It was just a passerby. That's because they were on vacation in they Myrtle Beach. Yeah, which yeah. Wow, way to read the room, Ruthie. Just being all like, oh yeah, my family's got to go on vacation to Myrtle Beach and. You posited, Emma, that maybe the reason why they're going on vacation is so that they didn't have to be in town when certain foreclosures went through. Yeah, avoiding the whole tar and feather there. Yeah, because that was something that wasn't off the table in the 30s. Let me tell you, one might almost say we could perhaps learn a thing or two from that. Uh, But it is an interesting situation because... After the Stones get their house foreclosed, we also meet another one of Kit's friends, a young kid named Sterling, who I want to give a shout out to him. That's He's played by uh, Zach Mills, who you might recognize him from uh, Super 8. He was Preston in that movie, and I, I think he did a pretty good job. Like, something this movie did very well is that pretty much all of the child actors ended up turning in decent performances, all things considered. Which, it's always like a kind of a difficult situation trying to get kids to do certain acts, especially in the leads. And overall, I think they ended up doing pretty good. Yeah, I would say so. Pretty much all like the kids were pretty likable. Um, there was like one cast member we, for- we forgot to, to mention. Um, Willow Smith is actually in this movie. Yeah, Willow is playing this young kid named uh, County, who is hanging around this older guy named was it roger no it was uh it was will will that's roger right. was the mean boy from the class yeah because that's right that's right i do think county and will were kind of underutilized in the narrative a little bit after kit and her friends sterling and ruthie are kind of lamenting uh, some of the sad stuff that's going on with like people getting foreclosed and classmates like this kid roger being absolute dickheads about it there's always just like one really mean child and yeah everyone in these movies. i will say they do make roger way more detestable because he starts pulling in that whole like john birch society crap being all like uh i hear that anyone who goes to the soup kitchen is a bunch of freeloaders draining money from the government and it's and like true truly a little ben shapiro he is no, he really did. And just like Ben Shapiro, he ended up looking like a big old chicken after they covered his ass in feathers. So yep. you love to Classic. see it. You love to see it. Yeah, but like the characters, Will and County, they end up uh, coming to Kit's home and requesting like, you know, food in exchange for work. Mm-hmm. And they are uh, a part of the group that this uh, movie focuses quite a bit on, which are the... Uh, hobos which are the uh traveling homeless yeah during this era which i gotta say it was kind of like bizarre to remember that like hobo was like a real fictional term that was like used to refer to people at some point because i don't know if anyone here like i grew up with like dan schneider comedies or something where like hobo was just like a funny word people would say yeah so it is a bit yikes there I will say, another thing that this movie does pretty good, all things considered, especially since this is like a decently budget Hollywood movie, is that it does take steps to actually explain the sort of culture that sort of happened with the migrant worker community in the United States during the 20s to the 30s and 40s. Because they go into detail about things like the hobo signs 
and talking about their different slangs and the symbology that's there. Even though the movie doesn't actually tap into it, like it's pretty clear that the characters, the way they're written, are adhering to the actual ethical code that a lot of that community actually adhered to. It like it's a very, very fascinating subject to look into the history of, where usually these communal spaces that these migrant workers would live in usually involved this things about like being able to exchange services and being able to like uh, have these elements of mutual aid. And the result is some very compelling and sympathetic portrayals of a community that we really, really do not see a lot of in a positive light in a lot of big budget media. Hmm. I wonder why. Or, you know, it's basically just says like cartoons, yeah. you know? I do think that they did a good job to humanize a lot of these sort of people. And Will and County really helped to do that, I think. Even though County really doesn't do a whole lot in this movie, aside from just kind of looking cute. Yeah, she is pretty much just kind of a precious child. Yeah. Yeah, I think, like, we can kind of sort of get into the main kind of plot of this movie. Mm -hmm. There's sort of, like, two main things going on. We get the one part where um, Kit is an aspiring journalist, and she wants to get her uh, an article published in the... What is the paper called? Uh, the Cincinnati Inquirer or the Cincinnati I something? I think it was the Cincinnati Herald. Let me look that up. I was wrong. It was actually the Cincinnati Register. But she really wants to be a journalist and to get an article published in there. And her brother knows a guy who works there. Which, wasn't it kind of weird that they kept on mentioning that she had a brother, but, like, we never see the brother? Yeah, the brother like, is... Like, we see the brother's friend at the, the paper, but where is he? Well, they mentioned that the brother was going to be going to college, so he's, like, pretty older. But after the uh, recession hit and college became a lot more expensive, he decided to hold off on going to college and, in the meantime, working for the uh, Federal Works Program. Oh. Yeah. And that was something also interesting that I noted was the fact that immediately we got to meet their uncle Forsyth, who is also like this anti-FDR types. He was like one sentence away from saying it was just communism. Oh, yeah. That's the thing these movies always have. It's like the one problematic relative that kind yeah. of comes around at the end. Yeah, Uncle Forsyth's character is made slightly better by the fact that we only see him like twice in this movie. But he's still pretty insufferable every, every time we see him, though. So there's that. But it's at this newspaper that we meet uh, the Wallace Shawn character, who is yes. this uh, the editor-in-chief, I believe, of the paper. And mm -hmm. he's exactly how you would imagine him to be in this movie. He is brilliant. I will hear no Wallace Shawn slander on this podcast. I like how the corner of his lip is always turned to the side anytime you see his face. Yeah, that's something you noted while we were watching. It feels like all of the side bit characters were just kind of competing to out-ham each other in every single scene that they were in. And honestly, I feel like that's a pretty good direction to go when it comes to a movie, especially if it's a movie that is being told from a child's perspective. I, I, I especially appreciated Wallace Shawn, especially since he seemed to have no qualms about, like, telling a kid to piss off just to her face, which made it especially funny. But I'm going to jump ahead briefly. Later on in the film, when she is going over to the newspaper to try and convince him to run one of her stories in the paper, he pretty understandably is 
skeptical of her and is like, nah, I'm not going to run a story by a 10-year-old. Bye. To which she proceeds to chew him out outside his office being like, you wouldn't know a story if it was standing outside your door. And it's like, yeah, you get his ass, Kit. Like, props to Abigail Breslin. She has a ferocity to her performance that if you've seen her in other movies, it's not terribly surprising. But I think she did a really good job with this movie. And her chewing out Wallace Shawn was a pretty fun scene for me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. One other person that I want to highlight we mentioned Roger earlier, that asshole kid who's talking about the pores. Their teacher. Bless his heart, he kind of made a bad move when it came to, like, one of his projects. Because at the end of, like, the school year, he's like, oh, for part of your final exam, we're going to be volunteering at a soup kitchen. To which Roger's all like, oh, isn't that where a bunch of those leeches go? Oh, they should just pull themselves up by their bootstraps. To which he's like, okay, if you don't want to go to the soup kitchen, you could write a 1500-word essay. And it's like... Listen, kid, you need to learn some empathy. Stop being a little shithead, maybe. Like, you could definitely tell he's one of those teachers that really, really wants to slap a kid anytime they start pulling some shit, like talking about how, oh, this all would have been fine if we just reelected Herbert Hoover. Honestly, this is the this is the 1930s. He probably would have been allowed to do so. That's true. That's true. That said, uh, I don't know how good of an idea it might have been to have the have some of these kids go to a soup kitchen because I feel like something you could run the risk of doing is just give the kid more of a superiority complex, you know? Mm. That's the kind of problem you sometimes face when it comes to, like, volunteer work, uh, especially if you're someone from a really privileged background. And I say this as someone who's been around a lot of those environments. Sometimes it could cause them to become really condescending about that kind of stuff and... I don't know. Heart's in the right place, to be sure. But the soup kitchen bit is pretty important because that ends up leading to one of the more devastating plot reveals that I've seen in this movie. Because Kit is happily serving the very delicious 1930s looking bread to the people at the soup kitchen. That was, that was some, some delicious looking bread. Oh yeah. I gotta say, I do always like how bread and soup is portrayed in media, especially if it's just like a big pot of miscellaneous soup. Oh yes. Like, I'm not the biggest soup person, but I will say what they title hobo stew looked pretty good. Oh, yeah. Just like all those little bits just floating around in that nice reddish brown liquid. You like to see it. I, I love a good soup, especially in video games. Like, you mm. know, they have like the big soup in Stardew Valley. Oh, yeah. They got that that one land that's like a has a big thing of soup in Super Mario Odyssey. Ooh, oh, or the big uh, the big soup quest in Zelda Skyward Sword. Oh, yeah. Or or in Zelda Twilight Princess when you go to that snowy mansion. And they yes. got the big soup. Good yes. soup. I'm a big fan of any kind of big soups in media. I feel like we need more of them. Yes. But this was kind of funny, though, because when we were watching this, you did, like, exactly call what was going to happen in the scene at the soup kitchen. Yeah, because something that they had done in previous scenes when the family was all eating together, Kit's dad was noticeably being like, oh, don't worry about dinner, sweetie. I already ate a big lunch today. We can save that for later, which is like, oh, that's super sweet. And then, oh... Kit turns and sees her dad in line at the soup kitchen. And it was just 
jarring scene because you see like the sort of distress visible distress on kit's face though i do appreciate how the the film made a point of not making it uh kit be upset out of like embarrassment or her being ashamed of her father but more so just being very overwhelmed suddenly by the sudden prospect of her family not being able to have a stable life anymore I think they could have pretty easily played it so that she was embarrassed by that whole thing. So Mm -hmm. I guess good on you, movie, for not pulling that beat. But, like, this is one of those examples of, like, uh, this movie being deceptively unpredictable. All this to say that, like, even though I ended up predicting it, most of that came out of, like, the idea of, like, oh, man, what would be the most devastating thing that they could pull at this moment? And that being it. And mm-hmm. it's notable for me, at least, because it's, like, I was not expecting them to get that precarious this quickly. Because as you mentioned earlier, Emma, I was initially expecting them to pull something more akin to Samantha, where Samantha is kind of more a passive observer of the sort of problems and inequality of her era. Whereas Kit is actively like being more affected by this kind of stuff, which I think is a probably the best way to go in order to, you know, illustrate your point about, you know, teaching kids history and all that. But this ends up leading yeah. to a pretty decent heart-to-heart between uh, the Kit and her dad. Uh, Later on, he reveals that he's going to be trying to look for work in Chicago and leaving for the moment. People give Chris O'Donnell a lot of crap for the, uh, for like Batman and Robin and Batman Forever, but I think he does a pretty good job in this movie. The Bat Credit Card. I know. The Bat Credit Card. Oh, the Bat Nipples. But uh, Bat Nipples aside, you know, Chris O'Donnell, I think he did a pretty good job. I mean, what did you think of him? Don't really got any strong opinions, negative or positive. Yeah, he's not a very strong person. He just kind of kind of filled the same of like the parent character who has to go away for an important duty. And then comes back at the end. Yeah, I think that's Just like fair. Molly's father from the last movie. Yeah, except he doesn't die. Although they do allude to the fact that people did die of the Spanish flu, which, oof, oof. And, yeah, uh, I'm surprised that there wasn't any uh, any on-screen or any, like, uh, in-time parent death in this one. Yeah, I mean, I think the fact that they're already dealing with the precarity of like losing people's jobs and potentially facing foreclosure. I think no disrespect to uh, Valerie Tripp, but I feel like she usually has a quota of like only one devastating tragedy at a time, you know? Meanwhile, the mom has to start opening things up to some borders. Oh, actually, before we get to the borders, we also do need to give a big shout out to Grace the dog. I cannot find the animal actor that they hired to play uh grace the dog but that was a very good dog that was one cute ass dog she was all like like chubby and gray looking like oh brilliant dog <laughs> that like as, yeah. i let like i'm i'm more of a cat person listeners will know but i do like me a good old basset hound and the fact that they were just kind of sadly looking about and being such a well-behaved dog you love to see it oh yeah 
Yeah. But this is what kind of leads into sort of the main section of the movie where while Kit's father is away, uh, Kit and her mother end up converting their big house into a boarding house mm-hmm. in order to uh, help with costs and help, um, help you know, people out there in needing homes. And that's where we get a, uh, a lot of interesting characters that I'm very looking forward to talking about. My goodness, these characters. So, oh God. So what? I think we should probably start with uh, Sterling and his mom. Sterling is a kid from Kit's class, I believe. And, yeah. uh, they're, they're say, they have the same deal where their father has gone off to Chicago to mm-hmm. find work. And so they end up staying here and Sterling kind of becomes a part of the friend group that they have. Yeah, I, I got to say, um, I already mentioned uh, Zach Mills's performance being pretty good. Uh, something interesting is that his mother, played by Glenn Headley, was, I don't know, it was interesting to see her be very anti-hobo in this movie. And meanwhile, Sterling is dealing with the issues of his dad promising to write and all that stuff, but then dealing, eventually dealing with him becoming a deadbeat. Honestly. Yeah, yeah, their their dad kind of abandons them later on. Yeah. It's pretty sad. It was pretty sad. And like, Zach Mills did a very good job with that performance, I feel like. They did... Like, he really does sell that kind of, like, sadness that comes with this sort of stability being, like, taken away from you. Which is something that I think a lot of the kids kind of do a good job with, again. Because it is one of those things where you really do get the impression of, like, a lot of these kids are now suddenly having to deal with the things that they once kind of maybe took for granted or assumed were always going to work are suddenly just all out and like everything's off the table and i think that's something that a lot of kids probably could sympathize with uh and then there there are a couple of other borders uh ooh um we got uh i want to talk about uh jane krakowski's character yes here. well we have jane i think I read, her name is like Miss Dooley. Yeah, Miss May Dooley. Like yeah, yeah, and her and she is a former dance instructor. And her one personality trait is abject horniness. She is so like, horny, and honestly, we love her for it. Espe- I mean, especially since like around Stanley Tucci, which we'll get to that. Uh, and also, to be fair, Stanley. Gucci was pretty sexy in this movie. Not yeah, lie. okay. That it it was one of those things where it's like, okay, she you could definitely tell she's having a really good time. I also do appreciate how like all throughout this, uh, Miss Howard is defo like judging her throughout that. Uh, the fact that Miss Julie does not care one iota, just more power to her. Yeah, she is definitely a, a harlot and proud of the fact. Yes. And it's implied in the end that she gets with the Wallace Shawn character. Yes, because so that's a at this party pairing you never thought of before. You know, there it is. I don't. I don't hate it though. I don't hate it. Yeah, yeah that is kind of the one thing though, because she was pretty high up in the credits. You kind of expect that she would have played a bigger role in it, but in she's pl- mainly just kind of tertiary character. Yeah, she's, in here. It, it's mostly just kind of like a comic relief type of thing, which you know. I don't, not the worst thing in the world. Uh, I will say, though, the... She does get to wear some really cute outfits. She really does. Oh, goodness. Yeah. No. Listen, you're never going to see me complaining 
about uh, Jane Krakowski wearing some nice period piece wear. Yeah, we got we do got Stanley Tucci here as a uh, a magician. Yeah, a magician. He's uh, Jefferson Burke is the character's name, and he has this like little twirled mustached and. I gotta say, Stanley Tucci is an utter delight in this. Mm-hmm. Especially near the first half, because we've already mentioned how uh, the Tooch does end up betraying us later, much to our dismay. But in the yeah, first half does- of the movie, he really does sell that kind of, like, him being a, like, pretty nice and understandable dude. Yeah, I like how this movie is like, you know, hobos, they're really misunderstood. But fuck <laughs> magicians. I mean... They're, they're always... They're scheming. They're hiding something. <laughs> I mean, I will say, I have yet to see a media depiction of a stage magician that didn't make them an absolute scumbag. It, is Harry Houdini and James Randi the only two positive magician representation do we have? Well, I mean, remember that, that Now You See Me movie with, like, they all do a heist? <sighs> I mean, obviously they're doing criminal activities, but I mean, Jesus, you're probably supposed to like Jesse Eisenberg in that movie, I assume. God damn it. Emma, you forced me to remember that. They made a sequel, too. They did make a sequel. <laughs> Any other sort of uh, thoughts about the Tooch in here? Um, you know, you know me, I always I always love some Tucci. Uh, he really uh, lures you in with a false sense of comfort. Uh, yeah. So it is a bit. You know, a bit shocking later on when we realized he had nefarious means going on. But uh, yeah, I also especially like the magic tricks that he pulled, even though they're pretty simple and stuff. But we got it. We got to talk about the best character. Oh my god, now. the best one! Um, yeah, I was anticipating Tucci being the best one, but boy, howdy, did Joan. And Cusa- to be fair, he does do some hamming, some hamming up later. But like the queen of of ham in this movie has to go to Joan Cusack's character. Oh yes, believe me. Tucci delivers, but when we say ham, we're talking like the whole damn pig when it comes to Joan Cusack's performance, and it is delightful. Joan Cusack plays this lady named Miss Lucinda Bond, who is the driver of this mobile library, and her first main characteristic is that she is kind of dumb, and she doesn't know how to drive, as we see multiple scenes of her just crashing the car into their fence and their trash cans. Not only that, almost like hitting people. Almost hitting people, <laughs> yeah. There was like even a little joke that Will tells her. It's like, ha, ah, it's a good thing you got that horn. And it's like, <laughs> oh, okay, have you killed a man, Joan? Like, surely she's had to kill a man at some point. I feel like she's at least, like, ran over, like, some, like, animals in the driveway, you know, like... Yeah, probably hit a couple of those chickens once or twice. Oh, most definitely. Yeah. But, no, John Cusack's performance is so, like, kind of bizarre, the way she, like, gestures her hands and the way she moves around and almost this kind of, like, stiff, kind of, like, marionette fashion. It's very interesting. It's very interesting. (laughs) It's... It, it's definitely a very strange performance. I'm not gonna lie. Uh, I think the thing that impacts this is that a lot of the lines that they give her, you almost get the impression that they're like, oh, I mean, we got Joan River. We got to make her have like the biggest reactions possible to. You every- mean Joan Cusack? Sorry, Joan. You said Joan Rivers. Oh my God. Oof. <laughs> Gross. Uh, apologies, Miss Cusack. Marionette, like, is 
probably one of the better ways to put it because she'll sometimes just like jerk around at the camera and then and also just randomly hop up when she runs it, it's almost like she decided like oh i'm gonna play this like i were a villain on sesame street and we love her for it like do don't get it <laughs> twisted there's a lot of bizarre turns she takes but she was an utter delight in this movie oh yeah yeah for a good first half of the movie, it does mostly just depict, like, Kit having to try and to adjust to sort of these new realities of her family having to struggle, having to deal with these sort of borders. But closer to the beginning of the movie, this is where we get to the big narrative through line where so many people in the community are having this big distrust of the hobos because there's been a, supposedly this big wave of hobo crimes. We even see, like... At the beginning, this one dude, like, steal a dude's wallet and Kit briefly getting a glimpse of the guy and seeing that he has a tattooed, which is, like, one of those things that, you know, good setup and payoff stuff there. And it's one of those things where after spending some time with Will and County, Kit, Ruthie, and uh, Sterling end up visiting what they call the Hobo Jungle, which was right next to the river and the railway system. And we get to learn more about their, like, their perspective and, like, the ways that they help each other out. And also the kind of stuff where uh, they try to lead us to believe that maybe Will might end up doing some stealing at a certain point. Because Miss Bond, Joan Cusa's character, gives, gives Will a copy of Robin Hood, talking about stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. And there's this weird scene where this doctor walks past and will's like have you ever read robin hood what do you think of stealing from the rich and giving to the poor to which he's like i don't think there's nothing wrong with that and it's especially wild because the that doctor guy is martin roach who has done so much acting he was in the shape of water as octavia spencer's oh, husband and just seeing him here was like a nice surprise but yeah Martin Roach just shows up for, like, a single scene. I don't recall seeing him in any other scenes in the future in the movie. And it's like, okay, cool. All right. Oh, and I do want to highlight another person that they meet in the hobo jungle is this guy named Mr. Pennington, who's played by Colin Muckery. Oh, wait. I thought it were, yeah. I thought that person looked familiar. Yeah. I was like, that face looks familiar. No, dang. They really shelled out. Yeah, they really did. And... I also enjoyed his presence in this movie. Like, he mentions how, like, yeah, I used to be a stock and bond salesman until I lost everything and all that. It's from meeting all the different migrant workers in this community, Kit ends up wanting to make a an article that portrays the community in a sympathetic light, which, as you can imagine, old Wallace Shawn, Mr. Editor, is not interested in doing. Yeah, because, like, she talks with, like, uh, her brother's friend, and he's like, yeah, well, the hobos are doing all these crimes, so people don't want to talk about how they're actually good, so... Yeah, gotta sell the papers. Which kind of leads to something kind of interesting later on that I do kind of want to talk about, because this is where we kind of get into um, some events happening that kind of lead towards the climax where uh, robberies start occurring. Mm-hmm that um ruthie's her family's house while they're away it ends up getting robbed by someone who the 
a witness identifies as being a hobo with a limp. Mm -hmm. But it's at this time when Kit finds this out, she also finds from this witness that this was the same hobo that had the hat, the tattoo from earlier. Yeah. Yeah. He ended up leaving boot prints on the scene with a uh, prints that were similar to a pair of boots that had been given to Will. Yeah. They end up making it really seem like Will actually did it because his boot prints were there. Will ended up having a limp afterwards. It, it, I think it's a good sign that even though we later find out that Stanley Tucci was the one that stole it, they did leave enough clues that could lead someone to suspecting either one of them, which I think that's a pretty good sign of your writing there. Yeah, but either way, the police come after Will. Will has a limp and he's missing his boots. He says that he was jumped and his boots were taken and that's why he has the limp. But him and County end up running away and knowing the police have been watching them. Well, before we get this, we kind of ha- get to establish there's a scene previous where we get Stanley Tucci talking about how he has a uh, brother. Mm-hmm. Correct? Yeah, a brother in a different state that was robbed and attacked by a hobo, as he claims. Mm-hmm. And so he says that in order to protect themselves, they should put all their valuables into a box. Yes, because at this point, uh, Kit's mother has been really struggling with the money. And this is like basically all they have in order to make sure they keep the house. So they put the box uh Sterling's Mrs. Howard's wedding ring. Uh, they put a brooch in there, a watch, basically everything valuable they put in this little box. Mm-hmm. And when Will and County disappear, lo and behold, the box has been stolen as well. Yes. This ends up leading into probably the thing that helps best strengthen this movie compared to the others. Because the fact that this sort of like crime mystery element has been basically built up throughout the entirety of the narrative, it really does actually help to create a nice through line that ends up binding a lot of these stories together. And it also gives Kit a way more active role in the climax because she's going to be trying to find, she's trying to get to the bottom of this mystery in order to help both Will and to help save her family. Yeah. The investigation leads the cops to finding those star boot prints in Will's tent and finding a special brooch from Mrs. Bond. It's at that moment where we meet the brother. Oh, yeah. This character is uh, interesting. Yeah. So who is the actor who played this character? Oh, I'm trying to find his... uh... Smith. Yeah, Dylan Smith, who... Not terribly familiar with this. He is going to be in that one Lord of the Rings Ring of Power TV show. And he does have a lot of voice acting work, so... I don't know. He was in the second Maze Runner film. Oh, good. That, (laughs) That cinematic classic. I don't know, Friedrich was an interesting presence in this movie, not gonna lie. He, uh... What a... He kind of comes in, and he's just like... If Joan Cusick was hamming it up just the right amount, he kind of hams it up a bit too much. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you see him come in, and he has a monkey like a pet monkey yeah which you know we would think like he'd do something with that but the monkey kind of they don't really do anything with the monkey unfortunately they just got a monkey in there (laughs) yeah you'd think that the monkey would have like played a part in like the heist element of it maybe they used the monkey to like sneak in and find a thing i mean if you're gonna go to the lengths of hiring a monkey for your set surely you're gonna get a trained one who could do those kind of tricks yeah but i mean you gotta train the monkey but if you want him to do some like elaborate things that's probably even more you know yeah that's true that's true because basically all that kit does is that they kind of just like like this monkey just like shows up 
does a couple of gags and is in a cage for the rest of it. Meanwhile, Friedrich is just like so sad about having to leave the monkey behind. It's honestly a little endearing, but yeah, I, I do agree with you. He was probably a little bit, a little extra hammy. I think as a general rule, if your character has to have a monkey as part of your performance, I think it's kind of like your obligation to try and like rein it Where's in by- Where's the shenanigans? Yeah, exactly. You're putting a monkey here and you're not going to have him do any shenanigans? Exactly. What's the point? Yeah. Why even do it? Dang. Mm -hmm. Dang carnies underselling us yet again. Yeah, I know. Ah. But we also forgot to mention there was an event where the uh, boots that were- uh, made to incriminate Will were found in the tent of a uh, hobo camp that he might have been at, along with a brooch that was in the box that was uh, from Miss Bond. Yeah, another way to kind of like frame him. Yeah, but this kind of leads to like the big reveal of the movie, where when uh, the brother Friedrich has a tattoo that uh, Kit had seen on the person who had initially st stolen that one man's wallet, which leads her to realize that uh, Stanley Tucci was actually behind the robberies the whole time. Because he would use um, things like sleight of hand in order to steal the brooch out of the bag. The fact that he made told that story about like his brother being robbed and kind of tapping into those fear of like hobo robberies in order to actually rob people. Pretty, pretty good manipulation on that part. Yeah, and then... We also learned, well, Will said that he was attacked and his boots were stolen. Now makes sense that why they attacked them and hurt his leg so they could get, then go on to, like, pretend to frame him for robbing Ruthie's family's house. Yeah. So this is all kind of coming together. And then they do that thing where they're looking through his stuff and then him and Friedrich come out, come in to make their plans to get away. And they have to like hide in the closet and make sure they don't get noticed. You know, classic, classic kids mystery adventure. It's not going to be stuff. the last closet that Kit and Ruthie got to get out of. Hey, oh, <laughs> <laughs> happy pride. But yeah, they end up almost getting caught by the two of them. But, oh, Friedrich has a little map that he wrote of where he left all the money. And the two of them now got to head off and also uh, separate where uh, Friedrich's got to hop on the next train to Baltimore. I don't know. I got I read it as like, oh, Tucci's definitely going to sell him at first chance. After they get like the whole uh, map situation, Kit ends up uh, sneaking out and hides inside of their cars so that she can follow them. Meanwhile, Sterling and Ruthie ended up staying behind after Sterling comically fainted twice for some reason. Because Kit is just so, so daring to get into the trunk of these dangerous people. He just can't handle yeah, it. it they end up uh, conscripting Miss Bond into following them since she has, like, the car. And we get into more wacky Joan Cusack car chase stuff as she's, like, driving like a maniac down the road. And at a certain point... Now she was drifting. Yeah, no, she was straight up 1930s-style drifting. And some of her books even fell out of her library, which was absolutely devastating to me. You gotta imagine, like, there's a lot of books in there. Those books aren't gonna be cheap. It's it's the Great Depression. You gotta be able to deal with that kind of stuff. But I'm trying to remember what ended up tipping Kit off to Joan also being. Oh, yeah, that was kind of upsetting when we realized Queen Joan Cusack was also in on the scheme. But basically, 
the the way they justify it is by like, well, she was like the assistant during their magic deck, and so like she's that leads us all to uh, the conclusion that she was complicit. But yeah, with this whole revelation that like they these three three were basically behind like all these crimes that like framed like hobos as their as the ones responsible. I do kind of want to say it, it is a bit sketchy to me that this movie kind of like creates this narrative where like you know these media these big like media newspapers are focusing really heavily on like the crimes of uh, this impoverished group of people to go then be like, but actually it was this other group of people that were responsible for all these crimes. So. Yeah, I guess it, it does. The media was right. They was right the entire time. They were just being deceived. Yeah, it would have been nicer if they'd caused people to actually kind of rethink about their previous biases with a lot of that kind of stuff. Yeah, because I'm like, I'm kind of thinking like, even if like hobos in this world were responsible for crimes happening to some extent, I feel like that really wouldn't be a justification for discrimination, you know, or like Mm -hmm. not like looking at all the factors that might like contribute to someone who is like, lost everything yeah you know having to as said take away from the rich you know also yeah also the fact that they made this group not just steal from the big banker dude but also steal from kit's family it kind of does paint a thing where it's like see no one should ever steal from a rich person because maybe they're also strong I don't know. Yeah, it's kind of, it's sort of like we see a world where like these big systemic like powers like, you know, Ruthie's family that own the banks are able to just kind of get by while everyone else suffers. And but then it also kind of portrays these people as being, you know, bad for committing crimes. But like we kind of don't know their background that much like i don't think stanley tucci and his brother and joan cusack are meant to be like rich like i'm pretty sure you do get the sincere impression that they are like kind of just a bunch of folks that are just also trying to survive with what they got because the climax involves like this big chase of like them trying to get to kit and the kids to get the money box back and eventually we even get like a little uh kill face turn from joan cusack as she uh stands up against stanley Tucci and his brother and is like actually it's really wrong what we were doing and it's like this whole big moment but yeah I guess that's kind of the thing with a lot of this media like it's easier to just like create just like a few villains that you can blame societal problems on than kind of tackle the bigger social implications yeah of when these things happen you know yeah it, it, it is one of those fine lines that you do have to cross none of this is to necessarily undercut the attempts at sympathy that they do try to pull but it does bear mentioning that yeah they are presenting a very simplistic view of what is a very complicated type of situation so yeah this does lead into one of the interesting ends to this because what ends up happening is stanley tucci in is about to offer the different uh homeless people in the Hobo jungle, like a bunch of money if they can rat out Kit. And it's, you could see like the clear conflicted expressions that are on their faces as they are doing that, which I don't know. Were they not interrupted by Sterling's sneeze? I, I would have been very interesting to see how they react. Yeah, I was kind of, I found it kind of felt like the sneeze was a bit of a cop out. Yeah. It was like, you know, like it didn't, like, how would they have like reacted to, because he was like, well, with this money you could feed your families blah 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 but then like the narrative kind of doesn't allow us to answer that question because like he ends up giving himself away anyway so it's like yeah 
I don't know. Bit of a cop out. Would have been nice to see what they, how they would have reacted with that. But the film does end with them being caught. And we also never see any sort of like major resolution for uh, the uh, Hobo community. Where it's like, if they were to give a whole clean ending thing where it's like, oh, and we're going to give you everyone houses. That would feel also a little disingenuous if they wrapped it up super nicely there. But near the tail end, they do have this little final reveal where after Will is absolved of the crimes and all that, everyone has this thing where it's like, but where's County? Where is it? Where is he? And it turns out County is short for Constance. And we see Willow Smith out going full femme. Yeah. I believe you said it best, Emma. Oh, yeah, because, like, Sterling has a line where where he's like, well, you'll always be a boy to me. To which Willow's like, thanks, I guess. Sterling said this Pride Month, you're going to be trans whether you like it or not. <laughs> uh I think Sterling's just not ready to come to terms with the fact that he's bi instead of gay, so... You know, God. yeah, this kind of leads to the conclusion we have, like, it doesn't end on Christmas in this movie. It ends on Thanksgiving where uh, Kit's mom has this big dinner. And um, in the end, um, Will brings a lot of the community to come in and share food as well. Yeah. And even the problematic uncle seems to get over some of his issues, I guess. It's one of those endings where, like, everyone just shows up at this house at the same time to deliver the resolution to the plot line. Because that's mm -hmm. also when we get Wallace Shawn coming in, letting Kit know that they're going to publish her article about the hobo community in the paper. Yeah. And uh, also, finally, uh, Kit's father returns saying that he didn't find work in Chicago, but he's going to try to find work here, which I thought mm. was kind of kind of interesting that like that plot also doesn't really get dissolved. Like we never know if Kit's father ever does end up getting a new job. So like for all we know, yeah. they did just, like straight up eventually lose their house after this. I'd like to think that perhaps maybe that didn't happen, but it is an interesting note to end the movie on. Yeah, I mean, so... I feel like this will probably be the last American Girl movie we'll cover, at least for now. Uh, I don't know. I don't know, Emma. There are some uh, movies in this series that I am actually pretty keen on looking. Yeah, I mean, we, we are kind of like at a point in this podcast where it's like, you know, we can kind of just kind of do whatever. Maybe we'll do another poll. Yeah, we'll have to see. But with that all said, Emma, what, what do you rate this movie? I rate this movie a good... Uh, Three pots of big soup out of five, you know, said probably um, I didn't like it quite much as the Samantha movie, but I definitely thought it was more enjoyable than the uh, Felicity and Molly movies just because I kind of felt like having, really, yeah, I kind of felt like having the uh, quirky side characters and the performances given by the actors really helped kind of elevate this movie into much more entertaining. So, yeah, I That's thought true. it was a decent time. Honestly, maybe it's just because this movie's so much more fresher, but I honestly almost kind of preferred this movie to S Samantha, but I don't know. I feel like Samantha will just always get props in my mind for showing a child sweatshop in a kid's <laughs> movie, so. That is fair. That is fair. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give this movie an FDR out of 10 because, you know... There's a lot of good stuff you could say about FDR during the t context of the 1930s. And 
there's plenty of naysaying you can put against it, but it is a thing where at, for as many good things as it does, it does do a disservice to a couple of the characters and groups of people. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think that's going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's, been, it's been a journey watching these uh, historical American Girl films. Um, but yeah, we'll just have to see, you know, where the podcast takes us next, I believe, at this point. Indeed. But until then, Emma, where can people find more stuff with you? They're The people, they're clambering, they're dying, they're yearning to be able to get more of that good, good Emma Corey before we see what other new adventures and atrocities the pink owl subjects us to um yeah you can follow me on twitter at emma cory nine if you want to but uh, like i said the posts there are few and far between but you can uh, be rest assured with the knowledge that i uh, i saw that you followed me and i uh, i might follow back if i uh, don't forget about it so um there you go yeah. <laughs> as for the podcast listener if you've want to stay up to date you can follow us at pink owl pod on the twitters send us a little email perhaps at pink at gmail.com if you have any sort of feedback suggestions or ideas that you would want to do and giving us ratings and stuff on your podcast platform of choice feel like we don't pitch that enough but we do appreciate all the ratings and reviews that folks have left us behind yeah. Oh, and then I should probably pitch my stuff. If you enjoy the stuff that I do, you can find me on Twitter at Kathman Henry, as well as henrykathman.tumblr.com with all my stuff more or less in the same bit. And also on YouTube, where after nine months releasing my video about Cinderella, that is two hours and 45 minutes long please give it a watch so you can let henry know that his opinions on cinderella 3 twist in time are wrong it, it's it's a fine movie it's fine d tier yeah c tier is good i don't know what to tell y'all but aside from that you can also throw your support my way through my patreon patreon.com slash Henry Kathman, where you can get early access to all sorts of stuff through there. So, yeah, thank you one and all for the support. Uh, Emma, I have a little special surprise, actually. Oh. I was saving it till now, but I managed to scrounge up enough doll food in this pink aisle void we find ourselves in. And I got us some doll soup! A big soup for me? Just for you, Emma. Pay no attention to the large quantities of melted plastic in there. It's fine. Yeah, I, this doesn't look very nutritionally viable for my, my end. Uh, you gotta do what you can. But I'll try and uh, brush up the recipe a little bit more. Maybe I'd need more Beanie Baby beads to I think you might want. I think you might want to lay off on the, the glitter in there. I don't think having that much microplastics in one mm. system is good. Yeah, that's fair. All right, I'll be brushing that up. But... Until next time, thank you all for listening. Soup's up. Bye. God, I really want some soup.